Chapter Two of the Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Humple. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter Two, Constance's Birthday. Was it from observation of nature in its association with human nature, or from artistic feeling alone, that Shakespeare so often represents nature's mood as in harmony with the mood of the principal actors in his drama? I know I have so often found nature's mood in harmony with my own, even when she had nothing to do with forming mine, that in looking back I have wondered at the fact. There may, however, be some self-deception about it. At all events, on the morning of my Constance's eighteenth birthday, a lovely October day with a golden east, clouds of golden foliage about the ways, and an air that seemed filled with the ether of an aurum potaboli, there came yet an occasional blast of wind, which, without being absolutely cold, smelt of winter, and made one draw one's shoulders together with the sense of an unfriendly presence. I do not think Constance felt it at all, however, as she stood on the steps in her riding habit, waiting till the horses made their appearance. It had somehow grown into a custom with us that each of the children, as his or her birthday came round, should be king or queen for that day, and subject to the veto of father and mother should have everything his or her own way. Let me say for them, however, that in the matter of choosing the dinner, which of course was included in the royal prerogative, I came to see that it was almost invariably the favorite dishes of others in the family that were chosen, and not those especially agreeable to the royal palate. Members of families where children have not been taught from their earliest years that the great privilege of possession is the right to bestow, may regard this as an improbable assertion, but others will know that it might well enough be true even if I did not say that so it was. But there was always the choice of some individual treat, which was determined solely by the preference of the individual in authority. Constance had chosen a long ride with Papa. I suppose a parent may sometimes be right when he speaks with admiration of his own children. The probability of this being correct is to be determined by the amount of capacity he has for admiring other people's children. However this may be in my own case, I venture to assert that Constance did look very lovely that morning. She was fresh as the young day. We were early people. Breakfast and prayers were over, and it was nine o'clock as she stood on the steps and I approached her from the lawn. "'Oh, Papa, isn't it jolly?' she said merrily. "'Very jolly indeed, my dear,' I answered, delighted to hear the word from the lips of my gentle daughter. She very seldom used a slang word, and when she did she used it like a lady. "'Shall I tell you what she was like?' "'Ah, you could not see her as I saw her that morning, if I did. I will, however, try to give you a general idea, just in order that you and I should not be picturing to ourselves two very different persons while I speak of her.' She was rather little, and so slight that she looked tall. I have often observed that the impression of height is an affair of proportion, and has nothing to do with feet and inches. 
She was rather fair in complexion with her mother's blue eyes and her mother's long, dark, wavy hair. She was generally playful and took greater liberties with me than any of the others, only with her liberties, as with her slang, she knew instinctively when, where, and how much. For on the borders of her playfulness there seemed ever to hang a fringe of thoughtfulness, as if she felt that the present moment owed all its sparkle and brilliance to the eternal sunlight, and the appearance was not in the least a deceptive one. The eternal was not far from her, none the farther that she enjoyed life like a bird, that her laugh was merry, that her heart was careless, and that her voice rang through the house, a sweet soprano voice, singing snatches of songs, now a street tune she had caught from a London organ, now an air from Handel or Mozart, or that she would sometimes tease her elder sister about her solemn and anxious looks. For Winnie, the eldest, had to suffer for her grandmother's sins against her daughter, and came into the world with a troubled little heart, that was soon compelled to flee for refuge to the rock which was higher than she. Ah, my Constance! But God was good to you, and to us, in you. "'Where shall we go, Connie?' I said, and the same moment the sound of the horse's hooves reached us. "'Would it be too far to go to Addishead?' she returned. "'It is a long ride,' I answered. "'Too much for the pony?' "'Oh, dear, no, not at all. I was thinking of you, not of the pony.' I'm quite as able to ride as the pony is to carry me, Papa, and I want to get something for Winnie. Do let us go. Very well, my dear, I said, and raised her to the saddle. If I may say raised, for no bird ever hopped more lightly from one twig to another than she sprung from the ground on her pony's back. In a moment I was beside her, and away we rode. The shadows were still long, and the dew still pearly on the spider's webs as we trotted out of our own grounds into a lane that led away toward the high road. Our horses were fresh and the air was exciting, so we turned from the hard road into the first suitable field and had a gallop to begin with. Constance was a good horsewoman, for she had been used to the saddle longer than she could remember. She was now riding a tall, well-bred pony with plenty of life, rather too much, I sometimes thought, when I was out with Winnie, but I never thought so when I was with Constance. Another field or two sufficiently quieted both animals. I did not want to have all our time taken up with their frolics, and then we began to talk. "'You are getting quite a woman now, Connie, my dear,' I said. "'Quite an old granny, Papa,' she answered. "'Old enough to think about what's coming next,' I said gravely. "'Oh, Papa!' and you always telling us that we must not think about the morrow, or even the next hour. But then that's in the pulpit, she added, with a sly look up at me under the drooping feather of her pretty hat. You know very well what I mean, you puss, I answered, and I don't say one thing in the pulpit and another out of it. She was at my horse's shoulder with a bound, as if Spry, her pony, had been of one mind and one piece with her. She was afraid she had offended me. She looked up into mine with as anxious a face as I ever saw upon Winnie. "'Oh, thank you, Papa,' she said when I smiled. I thought I had been rude. I didn't mean it, indeed I didn't. 
but I do wish you would make it a little plainer to me. I do think about things sometimes, though you would hardly believe it. What do you want made plainer, my child? I asked. When we're to think, and when we're not to think, she answered. I remember all of this conversation because of what came so soon after. If the known duty of tomorrow depends on the work of today, I answered, if it cannot be done right except you think about it and lay your plans for it, then that thought is today's business, not tomorrow's. Dear Papa, some of your explanations are more difficult than the things themselves. May I be as impertinent as I like on my birthday? she asked suddenly, again looking up into my face. We were walking now, and she had a hold of my horse's mane, so as to keep her pony close by. Yes, my dear, as impertinent as you like, and not an atom more, mind. Well, Papa, I sometimes wish you wouldn't explain things so much. I seem to understand you all the time you are preaching, but when I try the text afterwards by myself, I can't make anything of it, and I've forgotten every word you said about it. Perhaps that is because you have no right to understand it. I thought all Protestants had a right to understand every word of the Bible, she answered. If they can, I rejoined. But last Sunday, for instance, I did not expect anybody there to understand a certain bit of my sermon, except your mamma and Thomas Weir. How funny! What part was that? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. You have no right to understand it. But most likely you thought you understood it perfectly, and it appeared to you, in consequence, very commonplace. In consequence of what? In consequence of your thinking, you understood it. Oh, Papa, dear, you're getting worse and worse. It's not often I ask you anything, and on my birthday, too. It is really too bad of you to bewilder my poor little brains in this way. I will try to make you see what I mean, my pet. No talk about an idea that you have never had in your head at all can make you have that idea. If you have never seen a horse, no description even, not to say no amount of remark, would bring the figure of a horse before your mind. Much more is this the case with truths that belong to the convictions and feelings of the heart. Suppose a man had never in his life asked God for anything, or thanked God for anything. Would his opinion as to what David meant in one of his worshipping psalms be worth much? The whole thing would be beyond him. If you have never known what it is to have care of any kind upon you, you cannot understand what our Lord means when he tells us to take no thought for tomorrow. But indeed, Papa, I am very full of care sometimes, though not perhaps about tomorrow precisely. But that does not matter, does it? Certainly not. Tell me what you are full of care about, my child, and perhaps I will help you. You often say, Papa, that half of the misery of this world comes from idleness, and that you do not believe that in a world where God is at work every day, Sundays not excepted, it could have been intended that women, any more than men, should have nothing to do. Now, what am I to do? What have I been sent into the world for? I don't see it, and I feel very useless and wrong sometimes. I do not think that there is very much to complain of in that respect, Connie. You, and your sister as well, help me very much in my parish. 
You take much off your mother's hands, too. And you do a good deal for the poor. You teach your younger brothers and sister, and meantime, you are learning yourselves. Yes, but that's not work. It is work. And it is the work that is given you to do at present. And you would do it much better if you were to look at it in that light. Not that I have anything to complain of. But I don't want to stop at home and lead an easy, comfortable life, when there are so many to help everywhere in the world. Is there anything better in doing something where God has not placed you, than in doing it where he has placed you? No, Papa. But my sisters are quite enough for all you have for us to do at home. Is nobody ever to go away to find work meant for her? You won't think, dear Papa, that I want to get away from home, will you? No, my dear. I believe that you are really thinking about duty. And now comes the moment for considering the passage to which you began by referring. What God may hereafter require of you, you must not give yourself the least trouble about. Everything he gives you to do, you must do as well as ever you can, and that is the best possible preparation for what he may want you to do next. If people would but do what they have to do, they would always find themselves ready for what came next. And I do not believe that those who follow this rule are ever left floundering on the sea-deserted sands of inaction, unable to find water enough to swim in. Thank you, dear Papa. That's a little sermon all to myself, and I think I shall understand it, even when I think about it afterwards. Now, let's have a trot. There is one thing more I ought to speak about, though, Connie. It is not your moral nature alone you ought to cultivate. You ought to make yourself as worth God's making as you possibly can. Now, I am a little doubtful whether you keep up your studies at all. She shrugged her pretty shoulders playfully, looking up in my face again. I don't like dry things, Papa. Nobody does. Nobody, she exclaimed. How do the grammars and history books come to be written, then? In talking to me, somehow, the child always put on a more childish tone than when she talked to anyone else. I am certain there was no affection in it, though. Indeed, how could she be affected with her fault-finding old father? No, those books are exceedingly interesting to the people that make them. Dry things are just things that you do not know enough about to care for them. And all you learn at school is next to nothing to what you have to learn. What must I do, then? she asked with a sigh. Must I go all over my French grammar again? Oh, dear, I do hate it so. If you will tell me something you like, Connie, instead of something you don't like, I may be able to give you advice. Is there nothing you are fond of? I continued, finding that she remained silent. I don't know anything in particular. That is, I don't know anything in the way of schoolwork that I really liked. I don't mean that I didn't try to do what I had to do, for I did. There was just one thing I liked, the poetry we had to learn once a week. But I suppose gentlemen count that silly, don't they? On the contrary, my dear, I would make that liking of yours the foundation of all your work. Besides, I think poetry the grandest thing God has given us, though perhaps you and I might not quite agree about what poetry was poetry enough to be counted in a special gift of God. Now, what poetry do you like best? 
Mrs. Herman's, I think, Papa. Well, well, very well to begin with. There is, as Mr. Carlyle said to a friend of mine, there is a thin vein of true poetry in Mrs. Herman's. But it is time you had done with thin things, however good they may be. Most people never get beyond spoon-meat, in this world at least, and they expect nothing else in the world to come. I must take you in hand myself and see what I can do for you. It is wretched to see capable enough creatures, all of want of a little guidance, bursting with admiration of what owes its principal charm to novelty of form, gained at the cost of expression and sense. Not that that applies to Mrs. Herman's. She is simple enough, only deluded to a degree. But I hold that whatever mental food you take should be just a little too strong for you. That implies trouble, necessitates growth, and involves delight. I shan't mind how difficult it is if you help me, Papa. But it is anything but satisfactory to go groping on without knowing what you are about. I ought to have mentioned that Constance had been at school for two years, and had only been home a month that very day, in order to account for my knowing so little about her tastes and habits of mind. We went on talking a little more in the same way, and if I were writing for young people only, I should be tempted to go on a little further with the account of what we said to each other, for it might help some of them to see what the thing they like best should, circumstances and conscience permitting, be made the center of which they start to learn. That they should go on enlarging their knowledge all round from that one point at which God intended them to begin. But at length we fell into a silence, a very happy one on my part, for I was more than delighted to find that this one too of my children was following after the truth, wanting to do what was right, namely, to obey the word of the Lord whether openly spoken to all, or to herself in the voice of her own conscience, and the light of that understanding which is the candle of the Lord. I had often said to myself in past years, when I found myself in the company of young ladies who announced their opinions, probably of no deeper origin than the prejudices of their nurses, as if these distinguished them from all the world besides, who were profound upon passion and ignorant of grace, who had not a notion whether a dress was beautiful, but only whether it was of the newest cut. I had often said to myself, What shall I do if my daughters come to talk and think like that, if thinking it can be called? But being confident that instruction for which the mind is not prepared only lies in a rotting heap, producing all kinds of mental evils correspondent to the results of successive loads of food which the system cannot assimilate, my hope had been to rouse wise questions in the minds of my children, in place of overwhelming their digestions with what could be of no instruction or edification without the foregoing appetite. Now my Constance had begun to ask me questions, and it made me very happy. We had thus come a long way nearer to each other, for however near the affection of human animals may bring them, there are abysses between soul and soul the souls even of father and daughter, over which they must pass to meet. And I do not believe that any two human beings alive know yet what it is to love as love is in the glorious will of the Father of Lights. I linger on with my talk, 
for I shrink from what I must relate. We were going at a gentle trot, silent, along a woodland path, a brown, soft, shady road, nearly five miles from home, our horses scattering about the withered leaves that lay thick upon it. A good deal of underwood and a few large trees had been lately cleared from the place. There were many piles of faggots about and a great log lying here and there along the side of the path. One of these, when a tree, had been struck by lightning and had stood till the frosts and rains had bared it of its bark. Now it lay white as a skeleton on the side of the path and was, I think, the cause of what followed. All at once my daughter's pony sprang to the other side of the road, shying sideways, unsettled her so, I presume, then rearing and plunging threw her from the saddle across one of the logs of which I have spoken. I was by her side in a moment. To my horror she lay motionless. Her eyes were closed, and when I took her up in my arms she did not open them. I laid her on the moss and got some water and sprinkled her face. Then she revived a little but seemed in much pain, and all at once went off into another faint. I was in terrible perplexity. Presently a man who, having been cutting faggots at a little distance, had seen the pony careering through the wood, came up and asked what he could do to help me. I told him to take my horse, whose bridle I had thrown over the latch of a gate, and ride to Old Castle Hall and ask Mrs. Walton to come with the carriage as quickly as possible. Tell her, I said, that her daughter has had a fall from her pony, and is rather shaken. Ride as hard as you can go. The man was off in a moment, and there I sat watching my poor child for what seemed to be a dreadfully long time before the carriage arrived. She had come to herself quite, but complained of much pain in her back, and, to my distress, I found that she could not move herself enough to make the least change of her position. She evidently tried to keep up as well as she could, but her face expressed great suffering. It was dreadfully pale, and looked worn with a month's illness. All my fear was for her spine. At length I caught sight of the carriage, coming through the wood as fast as the road would allow with the woodman in the box, directing the coachman. It drew up, and my wife got out. She was as pale as Constance, but quiet and firm, her features composed almost to determination. I had never seen her look like that before. She asked no questions. There was time enough for that afterwards. She had brought plenty of cushions and pillows, and we all did all we could to make an easy couch for the poor girl but she moaned dreadfully as we lifted her into the carriage. We did our best to keep her from being shaken, but those few miles were the longest journey I ever made in my life. When we reached home at length, we found that Ethel, or as we commonly called her, using the other end of her name, Winnie, for she was named after her mother, had got a room on the ground floor, usually given to visitors, ready for her sister and we were glad indeed not to have to carry her up the stairs. Before my wife left, she had sent the groom off to Addishead for both physician and surgeon. A young man who had settled at Marshmallows as general practitioner a year or two before us was waiting for us when we arrived. He helped us to lay her upon a mattress in the position in which she felt the least pain. 
but why should I linger over sorrowful detail? All agreed that the poor child's spine was seriously injured, and that probably years of suffering were before her. Everything was done that could be done, but she was not moved from that room for nine months, during which, though her pain certainly grew less by degrees, her want of power to move herself remained almost the same. When I had left her at last a little composed, with her mother seated by her bedside, I called my other two daughters, Winnie, the eldest, and Dorothy, the youngest, whom I found seated on the floor outside, one on each side of the door, weeping, into my study, and said to them, My darlings, this is very sad, but you must remember that it is God's will, and as you would both try to bear it cheerfully if it had fallen to your lot to bear, you must try to be cheerful even when it is your sister's part to endure. Oh, Papa, poor Connie, cried Dora, and burst into fresh tears. Winnie said nothing, but knelt down by my knee and laid her cheek upon it. Shall I tell you what Constance said to me just before I left the room, I asked. Please do, Papa, she whispered. You must try to bear it, all of you, as well as you can. I don't mind it very much, only for you. So, you see, if you want to make her comfortable, you must not look gloomy and troubled. Sick people like to see cheerful faces about them, and I am sure Connie will not suffer nearly so much if she finds that she does not make the household gloomy. This I had learned from being ill myself once or twice since my marriage. My wife never came near me with a gloomy face, and I found that it was quite possible to be sympathetic with those of my flock who were ill without putting on a long face when I went to see them. Of course, I do not mean that I could, or that it was desirable that I should, look cheerful when any were in great pain or mental distress. But in ordinary conditions of illness, a cheerful countenance is as a message of all's well, which may surely be carried into a sick chamber by the man who believes that the heart of a loving father is at the center of things, that he is light all about the darkness, and that he will not only bring good out of evil at last, but will be with the sufferer all the time, making endurance possible and pain tolerable. There are a thousand alleviations that people do not often think of coming from God himself. Would you not say, for instance, that time must pass very slowly in pain? But have you never observed, or has no one ever made the remark to you, how strangely fast, even in severe pain, the time passes after all? We will do all we can, will we not, I went on, to make her as comfortable as possible. You, Dora, must attend to your little brothers, that your mother may not have too much to think about now that she will have Connie to nurse. They could not say much, but they both kissed me, and went away leaving me to understand clearly enough that they had quite understood me. I then returned to the sick chamber, where I found that the poor child had fallen asleep. My wife and I watched by her bedside on alternate nights, until the pain had so far subsided and the fever was so far reduced that we could allow Winnie to take a share in the office. We could not think of giving her over to the care of anyone but one of ourselves during the night. Her chief suffering came from its being necessary 
that she should keep nearly one position on her back, because of her spine, while the external bruise and the swelling of the muscles were in consequence so painful that it needed all that mechanical contrivance could do to render the position endurable. But these outward conditions were greatly ameliorated before many days were over. This is a dreary beginning of my story, is it not? But sickness of all kinds is such a common thing in the world that it is well sometimes to let our minds rest upon it, lest it should take us altogether at unawares, either in ourselves or our friends, when it comes. If it were not a good thing in the end, surely it would not be. And perhaps before I have done my readers will not be sorry that my tale began so gloomily. The sickness in Judea, eighteen hundred and thirty-five years ago, or thereabouts, has no small part in the story of him who came to put all things under our feet. Praise be to him for evermore. It soon became evident to me that the room was like a new and more sacred heart to the house. At first it radiated gloom to the remotest corners, but soon rays of light began to appear mingling with the gloom. I could see bits of news were carried from it to the servants in the kitchen, in the garden, in the stable, and over the way to the home farm, even in the village, and everywhere over the parish. I was received more kindly, and listened to more willingly, because of the trouble I and my family were in. While in the house, although we had never been anything else than a loving family, it was easy to discover that we all drew more closely together in consequence of our common anxiety. Previous to this it had been no unusual thing to see Winnie and Dora impatient with each other, for Dora was none the less a wild, somewhat lawless child, that she was a profoundly affectionate one. She rather resembled her cousin Judy, in fact, whom she called Aunt Judy, and with whom she was naturally a great favorite. Winnie, on the other hand, was sedate, and rather severe, more severe, I must in justice say, with herself than with any one else. I had sometimes wished, it is true, that her mother, in regard to the younger children, were more like her. But there I was wrong. For one of the great goods that come of having two parents is that the one balances and rectifies the motions of the other. No one is good but God. No one holds the truth, or can hold it, in one and the same thought but God. Our human life is often at best, but an oscillation between the extremes which together make the truth, and it is not a bad thing in a family that the pendulums of father and mother should differ in movement so far that when the one is at one extremity on the swing, the other should be at the other, so that they meet only in the point of indifference, in the middle, that the predominant tendency of the one should not be the predominant tendency of the other. I was a very strict disciplinarian, too much so, perhaps, sometimes. Ethelwyn, on the other hand, was too much inclined, I thought, to excuse everything. I was law, she was grace. But grace often yielded to law, and law sometimes yielded to grace. Yet she represented the higher, for in the ultimate triumph of grace, in the glad performance of the command from love of what is commanded, the law is fulfilled. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I must say this for myself, however, that although obedience was the one thing I enforced, believing it the one thing upon which all family economy primarily depends, 
Yet my object was always to set my children free from my law as soon as possible. In a word, to help them to become, as soon as it might be, a law unto themselves. Then they would need no more of mine. Then I would go entirely over to the mother's higher side, and become to them, as much as in me lay, no longer law and truth, but grace and truth. But to return to my children, it was soon evident not only that Winnie had grown more indulgent to Dora's vagaries, but that Dora was more submissive to Winnie, while the younger children began to obey their eldest sister with a willing obedience, keeping down their effervescence within doors, and letting it off only out of doors or in the outhouses. When Constance began to recover a little, then the sacredness of that chamber began to show itself more powerfully radiating on all sides a yet stronger influence of peace and goodwill. It was like a fountain of gentle light, quieting and bringing more or less into tune all that came within the circle of its sweetness. This brings me to speak again of my lovely child, for surely a father may speak thus of a child of God. He cannot regard his child as his, even as a book he has written may be his. A man's child is his because God has said to him, Take this child and nurse it for me. She is God's making, God's marvelous invention, to be tended and cared for, and ministered unto as one of his precious things, a young angel, let me say, who needs the air of this lower world to make her wings grow. And while he regards her thus, he will see all other children in the same light, and will not dare to set up his own against others of God's brood, with the new budding wings. The universal heart of truth will thus rectify, while it intensifies, the individual feeling toward one's own, and the man who is free from poor partisanship in regard to his own family will feel the most individual tenderness for the lovely human creatures whom God has given into his own especial care and responsibility. Show me the man who is tender, reverential, gracious toward the children of other men, and I will show you the man who will love and tend his own best, to whose heart his own will flee for their first refuge after God, when they catch sight of the cloud in the wind. End of chapter 2